Welcome to another Sunday morning sermon from Marysville Christian Church. We're glad you're here joining us on this journey to learn more, love more, and look more like Jesus. We invite you to grab a cup of coffee and a Bible as we dive into God's Word. When Jesus felt compassion, it motivated him to do something. One person at a time. One person's story at a time. Jesus had compassion on a couple of blind guys in Matthew 20. And so he touched their eyes and healed them. He had compassion on a leper in Mark chapter 1 and he healed him. Jesus had compassion on a crowd of people in Mark 6 and so he fed them. And he had compassion on, on a whole city and wept for them and prayed for them and over them. I wish I could be more like Jesus because honestly, when life gets overwhelming, and it does, compassion can get lost in the crowd. Whether that crowd is a crowd of people or schedules or projects or stupid printers that won't connect to your, comp to your computer. Compassion can get lost in the crowd of chaos. Jesus understands what it's like to live with the crowds of life like that. There's a story in Luke 7. It says that Jesus is on his way with the disciples to a small village, and a large crowd was following him. There are some days that it feels like that, right? Where you can't get away without somebody, without, without a group, without a crowd. You just, can't get, you just can't be alone. Jesus understood that. They approached the village, and it says in verse 12 that a funeral procession was coming out of the village as he was going into the village. A widow had lost her only son. And it says a large crowd from the village was with her going out as Jesus and his crowd was coming in. In verse 13, it says, when the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. And the thing that Jesus said is the thing that, is the thing that they tell us not to say as you're learning how to minister to people and talking about funerals and, and funeral homes and all that. It, you don't ever say what Jesus said. Don't cry. Well, guess what? If Jesus said that... Well, good. We'll go with that. But instead, it says in verse 14, he walked over to the coffin and touched it. Now, coffins then were a little different than they are now. It didn't have the sides in the end and the lid, and it didn't have all the padded upholstery on the inside. You might be more accurate if you think, you know, some kind of a, a, a funeral, what they call it, a pier, a tier, a, a platform. So it was easy enough for Jesus to walk through the crowd, to walk up to it, and to touch her son. Young man, he says, I tell you to get up. 
he sat up and began to talk. I, I wonder if, I mean, they're carrying him out, right? And so it's like a flat surface. They're carrying him on their shoulders. You just have to wonder, did they drop him? Well, you're looking for Jeff Dunham to see if there's a ventriloquist in the crowd. You know, who said that? And maybe, well, of course, then Jesus took the boy and, and, and gave him back to his mother. And you hear that story and you think, what am I more amazed at? Well, okay, it, it's an easy one for the top one that, you know, he, he was dead, now he's alive. That, but, but there are those moments, kind of like what Ramey was talking about during our communion meditation. He'll find you wherever you are. The compassion of Jesus God in the flesh to care in the middle of a crowd about her is beyond comprehension. Jesus didn't have to get involved in the funeral that day, but he was compelled by his compassion. I mean, he wasn't friends with the family. He didn't know the woman. He didn't know the young boy. He, he wasn't related to them. He wasn't family. Nobody expected Jesus to intervene. They would have completely understood if Jesus would have just pulled to the side and waited out of respect. I think that's something that well, I know I struggle with sometimes is I settle for sympathy instead of allowing myself to be compelled by compassion. Sympathy. It's that bystander syndrome. You kind of recognize it when you think to yourself, well, what could I do? Well, there's nothing for me to do. Well, somebody else is going to take care of this, right? That, that's how compassion can get lost in our crowded thoughts, in our crowded feelings. <clears throat> Kevin Carter was a good-looking guy. Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist. He and a handful of others became famous for their devotion to exposing the atrocities of apartheid in South Africa. As a matter of fact, there was a group of four of them that, that actually were referred to as the Bang Bang Club because they were, they were willing and ready to go into the middle of the Bang Bang shooting, no matter where it was, and take pictures for the rest of the world to see what was going on. His photographs graphically exposed the countless murders and beatings that were happening at that time in their country as various factions tried to take control. Among those awful things that he was famous for taking some pictures of was the practice of necklacing. 
It wasn't the pearl necklaces that Garrett Wilson had on when he was selected by the pros. No, the necklacing in South Africa was when they would put a tire over your head, fill it with oil, and light it on fire. Eventually, Nelson Mandela came into power, if you remember, and, the, and, and things settled down for the moment. So the Bang Bang Boys, or, you know, Kevin Carter and his friends, turned their attention to the war in Sudan and the famine that was going on at that time. The famine brought indescribable suffering. We're not talking about just running out of toilet paper in the supply chain, okay? He took this photograph that was published in March, of 26, or March 26 of 1993 in the New York Times. And if you're sitting a little further in the back, you may need help understanding what it is that you're seeing. It's a small girl. And in the background is a vulture waiting for her to die. The child and her parents were on their way to a food station, but she just got too weak to keep up, and apparently her parents were too weak to carry her. How, how do you ever get that weak, right? And unbelievably, they made the choice that's incomprehensible to us here this morning to just leave her behind. She's either going to get her second wind and catch up, or she's going to die. Carter came under heavy criticism because he got so caught up in the moment when he saw what was happening in front of him that he spent 20 minutes getting in the right position with the right lighting of the sun and the right angles and getting the, the focus and the right filter of his camera. He waited for 20 minutes, he would later explain, hoping the vulture would spread its wings because that would make a better picture. And he failed to display the common decency and compassion of actually trying to help the child because he was so focused on what he was looking at through his lens. Most of us have trouble comprehending the amount of emotional detachment that it would take to not see what was right in front of you or feel compelled to do anything about it. Carter paid a high price for his ringside seat to pain and suffering, though, as he would zoom in on disaster after human suffering after the worst day of people's lives. His daily ritual became not just packing his bag with film and camera and lenses, but also to pack enough cocaine and a potluck of other drugs to help him cope with the dehumanizing horrors that he would see through his lens finder. Like I said earlier, he was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for this vulture photo. 
but the backlash of it was so overwhelming when he finally realized what, what have I done? That a few weeks after receiving the prize, he committed suicide. One of the things he left for others was this note. The pain of life overrides the joy to the point that joy does not exist. By contrast, Jesus shows us how to let compassion Open our eyes to see what's right in front of us. Living one at a time lifestyle like Jesus takes more than just good intentions or sorry feelings or sympathy of the moment. If that's all that we allow ourselves to do, it's kind of like <laughs> it's kind of like me and Ramey buying workout clothes with no intention of working out. We just like how it feels. And it's comforting to know we could, we could do that if we wanted to because we're dressed for it. Kind of like a lot of the people that you'll see wearing stretchy pants <laughs> when you go grocery shopping this afternoon. Clearly no intention whatsoever of doing anything with those gym shoes or that workout gear that they've got on. And that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> See, baby, I am learning some discretion. <laughs> that's scary to the rest of you that this is what discretion looks like. But here's the thing. Sympathy can, can make you feel like you've done something when you really haven't done anything except feel bad. It's easy to mistake the emotional response of sympathy for an actual response of doing something. It's like your reaction to the commercials with pictures of starving animals and the melancholy tones of Sarah McLachlan in the background. <laughs> On the other hand, compassion. Compassion. That's God's call to action. See, God doesn't want us to see things that will just break our heart. God wants us to see things that will move our feet. The test for compassion isn't that emotional reaction that you feel, but the test, the test for compassion is what you actually end up doing. It's kind of like James would say, faith without works is useless. It's pointless. It's vanity. It's a waste of time. It's meaningless. But there's so much. There's so many. How do you know? I don't have time. I don't have resources to do something about the crowd. And yet you see Jesus in the middle of the crowd, one at a time, allow himself to be moved by compassion. Remember how Luke described the response of the crowd to what Jesus did with compassion? The crowd said, surely God has visited his people today. And when people see us 
be overwhelmed by compassion and be compelled by compassion, not just to feel bad or to shed a few tears, but to actually get involved one at a time and do something, that's when people recognize the presence of God. And that's when we've not only learned about Jesus and loved like Jesus, but we've actually started to look like Jesus in how we live out our life. That's the point of that. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us that God will bless compassion. He makes it clear that when you learn and live his way of compassion, his life, that God honors that life. For example, he starts out the Beatitudes this way, and they're called the Beatitudes. It's a word that we don't use much, but it's the blessing that God pronounces. And he, he says it the, this way, God blesses those who are poor. He's not talking about how much cash you got or how much credit line you've got left. He's talking about those who are poor in spirit. And he says they realize their need for, for God. God blesses that. God blesses those who mourn because they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble for they'll inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or justice because there will come a day when they will be satisfied. God blesses the merciful for they'll be shown mercy and he blesses those whose hearts are pure because they'll see God. He blesses those who work for peace because they'll be called the children of God and he blesses those who are persecuted for doing the right thing for the kingdom of heaven is there. There's just one problem. Even though God promises to bless compassion, compassion goes against everything that you instinctively feel or have always been taught. What's your default setting when you have to deal with the difficult people in now, we're not going to shout out anybody's name, but you know who those people are, right? The people that push you, the people that make your jaw clench, the people that are the reason why you get migraines, those people. Again, we're not naming names. But we all deal with those rude people that just steamroll over everybody, regardless of what's going on. It doesn't matter if there's a spotlight, they're going to find it. And if there's not, they're going to ask somebody to hold theirs while they get in the middle of it. There's the annoying, ungrateful, and self-centered people that just think the world revolves around them. And you know how you're... You know how you're tempted you know the natural reaction you have to those people on our best day that natural reaction is just walk away on our good day but Jesus teaches the exact opposite of what of what became common knowledge and how we instinctively feel you'll hear him use the phrase you've heard that it was said well, what he's doing when he says that, he's referring to the law of Moses that they were taught when they were little kids in, in their scripture class. 
But then he may have also been referring to the traditional practice of putting that law into action. Now, he wasn't going to abolish the law of Moses. He didn't come to contradict it. But instead, he wanted to clarify it for them in their mind. And that's why in Matthew 5, verses 38 and 39, he'd say, You've heard that it was said. Here's that common knowledge that everybody knows. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And man, when it comes to dealing with the difficult people in life, an eye for an eye just feels right, doesn't it? That sense of justice is what makes sense to us. And yet he says, you've heard that it was said an eye for an eye or tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. He would give another illustration of that. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn them the other cheek also. Echoes of Will Smith and Chris Rock, I guess. But, you know, here, here's, here's the thing. Can I, a little audience participation I, for the sake of those at home. Come, come on up here. I just want to just show you. You don't have to brace yourself like Chris Rock or anything. Uh, just point out for everybody. Come on, well, we're into the camera scene here. Uh, point out for people which is your right cheek. My right cheek. Yes, that's that one. So if I'm going to double up my fist and I'm going to clock you, how am I going to hit your right cheek? One of us is going to fall to make that happen. On the other hand, how am I going to slap you on your right cheek? Well, hence Will Smith, right? You know, we're going to come back like this. That's good. And a heavy sigh of relief, <laughs> and he's done. It's the last time I'm coming back to church. <laughs> what it amounts to is that right cheek is an indication that they've probably backhanded you, which is more of an insult and show of disrespect than it is an attempt to go Mike Tyson on you. So Jesus is asking them. How easily are you offended when you're insulted? What's your response when people disrespect you? Because our culture seems to be focused on that now. And in verse 40 of Matthew 5, Jesus would say this, And if anyone wants to sue you for your shirt, hand them your coat as well. Now, Exodus 22 essentially forbid everyone... Now, let me rephrase that. Exodus 22 is where it talks about that kind of action, and it guarantees everyone a right to their coat because it was their blanket. So you couldn't take it away from people. So it's more than just encouraging a pacifist lifestyle. Jesus is teaching us, if you want to live God's life, you're going to have to re learn how to return the insults of life that come. You're going to have to learn how to respond to mean, wicked people. And he teaches them there are times when you just need to let go of your rights 
because it's the right thing to do. For example, in verse 41, he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now, the only one who's going to force you in that particular era was probably the occupying force of Roman soldiers. And in reference to the Roman law, it allowed soldiers to compel civilians to carry their pack for them, all their gear, for one mile. So you're done, and you just want to get home. And on the way home, this Roman soldier that you hate anyway for what they've done to your country stops you and calls you forward. And by the authority invested in him by Rome and Caesar, he hands his gear to you. When you're already wiped and whipped and just want to go home for supper, some Netflix, and be done with it. How do you react when somebody tries to control you? How do you respond when people manipulate you and force you to do something that you just really don't want to do? Get upset? Yeah. Slam the door out of frustration? Just thinking, if you've got, a, if you've got like a, a, a curtain over the doorway, how do you slam the curtain? I, for emphasis. I, I don't know how that works, but I'm sure they had their version of it. I'm pretty sure their version of it would probably involve the dog or the cat if they, they were there. You know, that's how they get kicked. And Sarah McLaughlin starts to sing about them. <laughs> you spend the rest of your night in a foul mood, yelling at the wife and the kids. And making everybody else around you as miserable as you are. And the next day when you go back to work, is that all that you can talk about is going over and over and over how much you hate the Romans? Jesus challenges them with an alternative to their conventional reaction. What if, instead of doing all that that comes so easily and so naturally, what if you were to volunteer to go two miles, not just one, to do more than what was required? Well, first of all, you'd probably have to do CPR on a Roman soldier. But in doing that, now you take back control. When you're insulted, respond with kindness. When you're criticized, respond with kindness. When you're blamed for something that wasn't your fault, respond with a blessing. And then he says in verse 42, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now we've all got those people in our life who just drain you. And it doesn't matter what you do for them, it doesn't matter how much you've done for them, they always demand more. And Jesus says, 
I want you to forget everything that you instinctively feel. See what I mean? Compassion goes against everything that you instinctively feel or have always been taught was right. But that's the way Jesus lived his life. And that's how he showed compassion time after time, one at a time. He was falsely accused. Mark records it and tells the story in chapter 14. He was unjustly arrested. He was violently beaten. He was spit on. And he was hung up on display for public humiliation and death. But there was no mistaking his response as weakness. Jesus made it clear that if he wanted, he could have called 12 legions of angels. And unless you're, you know, calculator of translating legions into people, that amounts to over 72,000 soldiers or angels. The angels had to grow restless that day, waiting and watching for a sign for any kind of an eye twitch. And they would have been there on Golgotha that day before anyone had a chance to say, look, up in the sky. Yeah. And after being nailed to the cross, do you remember the very first thing that they heard him say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Compassion makes a difference one at a time even when the one doesn't deserve it i don't know who your one is that doesn't deserve compassion maybe it's like the one woman that jesus found himself face to face with in john 8 She'd been caught in the act of adultery, and under their law, that demanded the death penalty. Now, an intriguing thing that I didn't realize until this last week is that if the woman was married, then she was to be stoned to death, which is what they called for for her. But if the woman was single, well, then she was just to be strangled. Whatever her hopes and dreams were on her wedding day, you and I both know that this was not on the list. Look, a box of rocks. Her story isn't that unique, though. You know the drill. Maybe you're living, maybe you're living it right now. You were so excited to be married, but now you're so lonely. He is so frustrating. All we ever do is fight. And then, one day, you meet somebody. And there's nothing going on. It's all innocent enough, you're just talking, but before she knew it, she'd crossed a line that she never imagined herself crossing. She felt so guilty, but promised herself, 
I'll never do that again. It was just a one-time mistake. God, I'm sorry. Uh, and, and then it happened again. And again. It was almost like she developed some kind of a split personality where she's two different people living two separate lives. The, the, the wife at home who's trying to be so loving and attentive that he will never guess what she's just been doing and the other one who is breathless until the next opportunity for them to be together when she can finally feel what she thought she would feel in her marriage. Familiar, right? Except for this, then the unthinkable happens. One minute he's holding her and she's snuggling against him in bed, enjoying their closeness. And before she knows it, someone else is holding her and she's struggling against their grip on her and she reaches for a robe, a sheet, something, anything to cover herself with, but they won't allow it because they've yanked her out of the bed, out of the bedroom, out into the street like this. She screams for help, but knows that the only response is just gonna be people staring because none of them will dare to interfere. Yeah, she's seen those stares before. She knows the hard looks of judgment and disapproval. There's no escape from that. Talk about a walk of shame. Uh, except maybe this is a, a drag of shame. The only thing that she can think of is how much further, how much longer. When is this finally going to be over? What? Where are they taking me? And she finally realizes when they stop where they are, they're in the temple of all places. The place where she feels more guilty than any other place that she could have been. And she can't stop thinking, I'm going to stand before God like this. And then she hears the accusation that John records. This woman was caught in the very act of adultery. The law of Moses commands to stone her. What do you say, they ask of Jesus. And her accusers keep demanding that the rabbi condemn her. The crowd around is deafening, but his silence is even more deafening. Why doesn't he say anything? Why is he using his finger to write in the dirt? She knows what happens next. And she doesn't dare to look up. She can't look up because she doesn't want to see it coming. She doesn't want to see the wind up and the pitch as the rock comes hurtling toward her eyes. No wonder she couldn't help but jump when she heard the sound of the first rock hitting the ground near her. Who threw that? But as other rocks begin to drop, what's going on? So what about you? Who deserves your condemnation? We're not just talking about how you feel now. We're talking about somebody done you wrong. 
and deserves to be condemned, just like the woman in John 8. Is it the cheating spouse? The frustrating child? The thief who stole? Those Democrats? Those stinking Republicans? As you wrestle between condemnation or showing compassion, let me encourage you to ask yourself, has condemning someone ever changed that person? Or this, has feeling condemned ever helped you change? Jesus finally broke the awkward silence and he asked the woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? In verse 10 of John 8. And she said, I I'm guessing she didn't know what to say. Until finally she just mumbled, no, Lord. And then she hears him say the most unbelievable thing she's ever heard in her life. Then neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin behind. Do you deserve compassion? God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We don't deserve compassion. We deserve condemnation. And until we acknowledge our own need of compassion, we'll probably go right on condemning others. But if Jesus didn't use his moral high ground to condemn her, then what right do I have to condemn somebody else that I think deserves? Hmm. Compassion. One of the reasons why we're reluctant to show it is because we think that it's the same as approval, but compassion is not the same as approval. In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, the easy-to-read version phrases it this way, How can you think we should continue sinning so that God will give us more grace? Jesus simply told this woman the truth. This woman who deserved to be condemned, this woman who deserved the death sentence, <laughs> this woman who was humiliated already, being dragged through the streets without a, stitch of, without a stitch on her. He simply told her the truth. You need to move forward and leave sin behind. Well, what if they'll abuse the grace of God? Jesus was willing to take that risk with her. Maybe I should... Maybe I should be more like Jesus. But it just doesn't come natural to me. That's the point. That for, as Christians, as those who believe in God, as those who are trying to learn and live and love and look more like Jesus, for us, We need to understand I've been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
So the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Compassion is God's call to action. David, I want you to praise team. Join me up on stage. Let me wrap up with this real briefly here. So how are you going to make a difference in your life? We can't allow ourselves the privilege of bystanders. We can't allow ourselves to be so disconnected from what's happening right in front of us that we become apathetic to the most needy in front of us. We can't become so preoccupied with getting just the right picture so that we can make just the right record of this so that we'll will be honored you see our life can matter we can be remembered long after we're gone but it won't be for the things that happened under the best of circumstances with the nicest people that we enjoy being around no our life will matter long after we're gone because one at a time one offense at a time one guilty person at a time, one person who deserved to be condemned at a time, one insult at a time, one mile at a time, one at a time, we showed compassion. Three things will happen if we're willing to go against what comes naturally to us and die to self, pick up our cross and follow him instead. God will bless our life. God will use our life. And God will be honored by our life. And people who see will say, surely the presence of God has been raised. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to learn more about Marysville Christian Church and connect with us, be sure to go to our website, marysvillechristian.org. If you are near the Marysville area, we would love to have you join us on Sunday morning. We have our Bible study classes at 9 a.m. and our regular worship service is at 10 a.m. Our address is 17,000 Waldo Road, Marysville, Ohio, 43040. Our phone number is 937-642-9838. Email is office at marysvillechristian.org.